Hello, and welcome back everybody to another episode with me, your host, Matthew LaStallion, on Burn Your Boats, my podcast where I interview entrepreneurs to teach others how to commit and take action. This is the second part of a three-part series that I had with Kelly Kroll. I knew her growing up. She uh, she was my next-door neighbor, and the things that she's been able to do in her life and the obstacles she's been able to overcome are phenomenal. Her understanding on the problem set that exists in impoverished nations and in, in disaster relief is phenomenal, and how she has been able to commit and take action in her own life and her own goals is inspirational. So I really look forward to presenting this next section of our conversation together. So here it is, kicking off round two with Kelly Kroll. While you were doing this, you had to, you essentially stepped away from a nonprofit that you had started. So where in the process of your first trip to Haiti, coming back and finishing college that were you like, rather that you were motivated and inspired to, rather than just participate in other nonprofits and, and to assist them (coughs) to help like co-found your own. So when I started doing this, when I went to Haiti the first time, the organization that I went with, which I won't name, um, had kind of a very different, uh, kind of a different agenda. I think when I went with them the first couple of times, because I did go back every time I went back to Haiti, I went with that group. And the last time I traveled with them is when I went to Cambodia. And when I was in Cambodia is when I started seeing that it was becoming more of a money-making machine Mm -hmm. than caring about the actual people that we were trying to see. Kind of lost the kind of the diff. Yeah. Yeah. It was more about like, we got to get numbers. Like we got to see as many people as possible. And I was like, seeing people doesn't equal caring for people. Yeah. So I would rather a hundred people today get like good quality, you know, whatever we're trying to do than see 500. And it's just like, so that we can say we saw 500 people, um, in their costs because I also pay every time I go volunteer. So their costs were going up and up and up. And it's like, I shouldn't have to take two weeks off of work and pay you $6,000 to go volunteer. Oh my gosh. You know, which is getting like crazy and pay for your own plane ticket, whatever. Um, But the kind of defining thing. Hmm? I was just going to ask, go ahead and and do that. I have a very minor question just about the process. Oh, yeah. Um, So when I, kind of my defining thing when I was in Cambodia was that we had this little girl that came in. And she was probably eight, nine years old and a short-term group, like the one that I was working with had come in about a year, year and a half before. And she had some kind of jaw issue. So her mom had taken her and they actually had done jaw surgery on her. She had to have her jaw sewn shut, wired shut in the back. 
And she was supposed to have that, you know, for, I don't know how, how long, I don't know what they, they told the family, but she was then supposed to go back to a hospital and have it obviously, you know, clipped and like the wires taken out. Mm -hmm. Well, the families can't afford that. So a year and a half later, she couldn't open her mouth. Um, She had lost two of her front teeth. That was the only way she was able to eat is she would ball up food and push it through the little spot in her mouth. And we actually had an ENT surgeon with us. But again, because we didn't have a facility, a legitimate medical facility to work in, we couldn't do anything. Oh my and gosh. So we had to like basically send her on her way because there was nothing that we could do. Um, because the risk we of doing like, something outside of a of an actual well, medical we didn't have any. Bye. We didn't have any surgical equipment, you know, we oh, okay. surgical equipment and basic medicals are completely different animals, yeah. you, know, you know, um, especially for, for that kind of work. Um, yeah, very supply need and expensive supplies are on a whole different level for something like that. Um, and I was like, and I was, you know, a group of us were talking to some RNs and, you know, doctors, one of my good friends, uh, her name's, uh, Daniel Katazinos and she's a hospitalist physician and she was there too and I I believe it was actually Danny that said um, the first time that she ends up getting some kind of gastric issue where she needs to vomit she's gonna die because she won't be able to throw up she'll aspirate on everything and I don't know if she's if that little girl's still alive or not but at that point I was like the short-term stuff is is not all right anymore um, I need to start looking at what we're going to do, um, for some kind of actual sustainable change. Cause going in and I mean, we were even seeing people in Haiti after the earthquake that had had a broken bone before that some group had come and put a cast on. Well, there's no one there to take it off. Oh my gosh. So we're cutting off these casts with pocket knives and they've got these skin ulcers and horrendous infections underneath. And so you have to start asking your que- the question, especially as a medical person, when our job is supposed to be cause no harm. Yeah. Um, at what point when we're doing this short-term medical stuff to maybe feel good about yourself and being able to say, I'm, I'm helping, that yeah. we're actually causing more harm than good. Because yeah. if you're not going to stick around um, and make sure that that person has perpetual care until the end of that cycle. Is there a point that we have to realize that we're, we're being negligent? And I really think that, that that's where we're at um, with that, that short-term stuff. Again, I, I, I do believe there is a need for acute care. You of know, course. we had kids that had, you know, horrible, uh, you know, if they wouldn't have been treated with, you know, IV antibiotics and stuff, they would have died. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, that's needed, but to do these long-term procedures, like in putting wire in, in small children's jaws that need another surgical procedure to remove, but you're not going to be there to follow up or make sure that it's taken care of or putting casts on people and things like that. Like we're now becoming negligent. Yeah. Does it become irresponsible to not look at the second and third order effects and the way there's a term in the it's, military for I some think it is. I, I, it's hard to disagree because, and, and 
I'm torn when I think about it because if if I'm there and I know how to cast an arm, you know, and and set a broken bone, I feel like I'm obligated to do so, even if I'm not going to be there. But at the same time, if you have no intention of coming back and and you're not handing your kind of caseload, if you will, over to somebody when you leave, that's why it makes me question why you're even there, you know? Well, well, I mean, that's, that's the thing is so somebody comes in with a broken bone and you're going to put a cast on Mm -hmm. and they have no way to get it off Mm -hmm. and they don't have any follow-up medical care. And then they end up getting a horrendous skin infection that causes septicemia that they die from is that better than the fact that they had a broken bone? Yes. Probably, probably not, probably not better. You know, which is, which is really unfortunate that we have to like view it that way. It's like, Oh, well you can walk around with your like floppy jacked up wrist for the rest of your life or whatever, you know, but you're going to have the rest of your life or whatever, but have the rest of your life. But then you have to like question quality of life. And so it's like, I said, it's nuanced. Yeah. It's not, it's a very like, multifaceted issue you know there's so many components that go into it like how do you yeah equivocate them all yeah and so so seeing all of these problems that arose from the short-term solutions this was your inspiration for starting your own nonprofit. uh yeah um one of my goals still is to have a a free medical clinic on every continent before i die (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's that sounds amazing. Um, I, I really again want to focus on the more um, transportable kind of medical clinics because a lot of the areas in the world that are the most in need of medical are in a very like rural areas. You know, I I, I don't want to get like political here, but with the whole anti-vaxxer thing, the anti-vaccines and this measles outbreak now. I look at these people that post stuff about how nobody should be able to tell you that you have to vaccinate your kids while I've literally watched mothers carry their children on their backs for like five days to come get a vaccine for their kid. And you're like, really? Like you have to actively (laughs) avoid it. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Like, and you're just choosing not to do this. Like, Okay. And again, and well, one of the other thing, I think it was the second time I was in Haiti, we were actually doing, um, during our intake process, we call it like the triage. We get information from the patient and all that stuff. And one of the questions that we had, we had a, a set of questions that we were asking so that we could um, get information um, and stats back to, uh, to who, to the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions was, especially to women, have you had kids before? Yes or no. If answer is yes, how many? How many miscarriages have you had? And how many children have you given birth to that have died? And have you given birth to kids that have died? And every single one. Yes, I've had a child that's died. Every single one. Every single one. And this is over like two weeks where we probably saw well over like 12 to 1500 women at least. Oh my gosh. And every single one of them has had had a child under the age of five die. And, you know, it's just, 
it's kind that's of sobering you, because yeah. you know, I mean that's what you because expect. that's that's normal that's normal there that happens all the time when we hear in the United States if somebody says I had a child that died you're like oh my god I can't imagine what that's like but in another no. country it happens all the time well it's when crazy I remember, there was a I forget who it was was it Calvin Coolidge we had a president who had a son who was and this was this is just a reference to time, which is that's what made me think about this was that all of those problems sound like a back in time problem. They are, and it's happening currently. Like we, I mean, and it was it was so prevalent that we had a president of the United States that had a son die after getting like a blister on his toe from playing tennis that then got infected and he died from it, like. That was that was how prominent it was that the the leader of the free world son mm-hmm. died from an infection, and it's amazing how far we've come. But it's incredible that you know all boats were not lifted with the tide that we rose up on. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, now that people have a choice, and and the thing is, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole vaccine thing and all all of. By all means, behind you, can that. Dive, you can dive in. <laughs> but no, <laughs> but, I mean, it's like, fine. you know, it's, it's the, the herd mentality. Um, yeah. That, well, it, that's not the right term. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it's called, so forgive me. But basically, the only reason that children in the United States can survive without vaccines is because the rest of the population for the majority is vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so, it, it's something, it, it's hurt, it's hurt something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah, can't. Yeah, you're it's right. Totally escaping me right now. Yeah. Um, but that's the only reason that they. Oh, it's can herd immunity. Actually, you know that they can right. herd herd immunity. Yes, you're right. Um, because because of that, that's the only reason that there can be a small percentage of kids that can actually survive without the vaccines. And then if you see not, the problem arising. We would be looking at we would be looking at child child mortality rates that are the, the exact same as in the developing developing world. Yeah. There's no I, way around it. With my with my personal like kind of where I sit philosophically, I I do have a hard time telling people that they have to inject their kids with something like you're forced without a choice. I just it's one of those things where like I think that you should. <laughs> I think that you should do that, but I it's well, I have a hard time but, pulling but the trigger. The same. <laughs> But that's the same same thing is, is that I'm surprised at the, the amount of things that our current government wants to mandate right now regarding people's bodies, but they don't want that that's something that they, they won't get involved with because that's supposed to be a parent's choice. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it can be one and not the other. Yeah. And again, I don't want to get political during no, this. No, for sure. No, 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 no. I completely get it. I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> but, want to. But, I, but I'm pretty sure that you know what's going on in like Georgia and like Alabama. Oh, yeah. I live here. <laughs> yeah. It's, so. It's, yeah. it's definitely something. But so you started, what was the nonprofit that you co-founded? Uh, it was called My Little Patient. My, or it's called My Little Patient. Um, and so your, what was the, um, I guess like, I know that you were trying to help people. How did you guys decide where to go and when to go? Because, I mean, I'm, I know it wasn't just disaster relief, like you were saying. It was to other places when, you know, just to, just to assist. How did you make those decisions? 
Well, I mean, I think that all of us that kind of came together to start that, like, you know, we'd been working in different areas of the world all separately for a long time. And we had lots of contacts with, you know, you meet people like when you're in the country that are from different places too. Sure. So, you know, we took a team to India and, and we did do a, a medical clinic there. Um, but a lot of that was again, treating acute illness and also getting some data and stats, medical statistics on, you know, what are the major conditions that we're seeing and, you know, what's the cause of this? Well, a lot of them, again, unclean water, which yeah. is still unbelievable to me that even in the United States, it's still a huge problem um, that people don't have water. And then we've got these big corporations like Nestle um, that their CEO has come out multiple times and said that that water is not a basic human right, that it's a manufactured food good and everyone should be charged for it, um, which is mind-blowing to me. Wow. <laughs> but um, so we saw that, you know, they have unclean water. So, and again, you me as a medical anthropologist, I look at what is the root cause of an issue. So again, if you've got gastric issues and you've got bad oral health and you've got this and this and this, and all of those can be traced back to unclean water, unclean water is what we have to fix, not throwing money at the fact that you've got this and this and this. Mm -hmm. yes, that needs to be corrected. But if you don't fix the unclean water, the rest of it's never going to make a difference anyway. It's so, the, it's the idea of, you know, if your boat's taking on water, you got to plug oh, before you start dumping the water on it. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many buckets you have, like yeah, it's just gonna getting blown into it. Like it's going to keep pouring in. So um, we got to patch the hole. Yeah. Like you can, you can go ahead and still be like taking a bucket and like throwing it out. But if you don't want to patch the hole, like you're, you're never going to not be like, you know, trying to get the water out the boat. Yeah. So when we were there, um, you know, we realized there was obviously a huge need for, for like just actually any kind of water access. Cause I think some of, we were working these really rural villages in uh, Southern mid Southern India, uh, areas called Puttaparthi and, um, really rural villages. We were the only, um, I think we worked in like seven or eight different ones when we were there. And we were the only medical folks that had ever been to those villages as long as they're like oral historians can remember. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They actually threw us a parade every single day, every day. A parade? <laughs> it was, uh, they threw us like legit parades where the entire community would like walk with us and they would like give us these big like flower like necklaces and put those like red bindi dots on our heads and yeah. give us these like uh you know uh these like coconuts uh I'm not sure exactly what the meaning was but we had to carry like these coconuts on our heads <laughs> Um, it, it was a, it was like a very honorable thing. They actually yeah. were like referring to us as if we were like deities, which oh was God. kind of unsettling. Yeah. So it's like, no. <laughs> no. And there was one point that they were actually were coming out with their clean water and throwing it in the streets for us to walk over. And I was like, tell them to stop getting rid of their, their clean water. 
the deity will be upset with you if you keep no, throwing clean water. Seriously, I was like, oh my God, give that to your baby. If we do not use need your, to walk on like a clean street, it's fine. Use your position of power for good, Kelly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but after we left there, um, we, you know, looked at some grants and we, we actually installed a, like an industrial sized, um, reverse osmosis uh, water filtration system in one of the rural villages. Um, and so again, with the whole stepping stone, we told them, we'll put in this unit. You guys are going to have to build the kind of like brick and mortar that it's going to be housed in. Mm-hmm. And they did. They came together as a village and they, they built it. We coordinated getting the unit installed. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, you know, they said that they're going to, I think, charge like half a rupee for like every liter of water people came to get. We made the agreement with them. If somebody can't afford water, they can still get it. But that was a way, you know, they figure out a way to maintain it because the, the filters in it have to be changed every six months. Yeah. There um, are costs so associated that have to be. There, there are, but, you know, they figured out the way again. Yeah. They charge people a very minimal thing. Um, and I think the closest place that they could get contaminated water to that area was like over three miles each direction. So most of the girls weren't able to go to school because they had to go walk and get dirty water every, every day for their families oh and God. still everybody gets sick. So since then, I think it's about three or 4,000 people per day can get uh, clean potable water from oh that God. area they have made enough money to not only support what we had originally installed and take care of the filters, but they've actually purchased another, like, I think it's like a 2000 gallon cistern and built a whole building for that. Oh, that's amazing. It's got to run with electricity. So if they have like a brownout or whatever, where they don't have a, or or a blackout, um, it won't run. So they have a way now to store up to two thousand or two thousand gallons of already purified water for people to still use if they don't have electricity for oh, a day or two. That's so. Um, and they have even put together a portable water truck that will go to even further surrounding villages to d- drop off clean water to people every day. Oh my gosh, that's so smart. That is great. But they've taken complete. We literally got the funding to put in the original unit. And we've had nothing to do with it since they've done all of that by themselves. Oh my gosh. That's, that's incredible. That's, I love that one principally, but two, because it is you practicing what you preached, like what you were talking about earlier and what the problem is and not going in there to be the savior, but going in there to, to show them how to fish and giving a hook. Yeah. We're, we're not the saviors. And I, and I think that, you know, I do personally have an issue with some like organizations or entities that go in and basically completely disrespect people's cultures, yeah. religion included, and they expect some kind of like patient compliance or even <laughs> personal compliance response. And it's met with ultimate resistance a lot of the times, which I understand because just because you're poor and just because you don't have an access to the same like educational standards mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you shouldn't also be valued as a human being with how you grew up and what you believe in. Just given respect. You, it's just basic human respect. 
It, it really is. Um, so again, part of medical anthropology, which, you know, was kind of a new emerging field back when I got into it. Um, Creighton didn't even have it. We just had gotten a degree in it and decided to do a degree in it. Oh, wow. Um, when so I, one of the like the year I graduated. Yeah. You're an um, OG medical anthropologist. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Um, you know, that's like something that's been kind of unheard of, but it, it, it was so fascinating to me because I loved the medical field. And I also just loved how different people are. Um, and I think a lot of it, because it was like how I was raised, like my dad always told me is like, you know, people are not that different. He's like, when it comes down to the basic parts of human nature, he's like, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants their ch- to take care of their children. And it's true. And I don't care where you go. That, will, that whole hierarchy of for, for the most part, that's what everybody in the world wants. I mean, I'm not going to speak for extremists or anything course, like that. That's a whole different, you know, business. But yeah, I agree with that. And that's what I've seen in the world. Like, I mean, you know, people care about their families and they want to be safe and, you know, they want to make sure that they have something to eat, you know, and that, that they're have a roof over their head. Like, and I believe that everybody deserves that, whether or not they believe in the same God as I do, How or wear the same clothing that I do, yeah, or yeah. love the same sex person that I would, or whatever it is. Like, yeah, it's, everybody uh, deserves to be treated with an ounce of just like human dignity, in my opinion. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, just crazy to me that you would show up wanting to help somebody and not caring about their beliefs. Like you think that would be like a primary focus. If you're going to go, you know, you're going into another country. You think that would be a primary, like I'm going to make sure that I understand the culture. So as I'm helping them, I can do it in a way that's respectful and is even more beneficial than just coming in with my own values and being, and not understanding why there's frustration. It's, it's mind boggling. Well, I mean, sure. You can say that and I'm not going to disagree, but historically, if you look through like any data keeping, like through any culture and any historical document as human beings, we have set a precedence for cultural imperialism. Every country that has ever gone into another area that is more technologically advanced or more democratically advanced or politically or religious or infrastructure economically more advanced, they look at the other culture as being subpar and that we need, we're saving you, right? So, you know, the the Greeks and Romans did it when they invaded different areas. Um, uh, you know, we did it with the Native Americans in Mm. the United States. You know, nobody ever, everybody knows about like, you know, the, the Jewish Holocaust or, you know, and as Americans, we don't think there has ever been a genocide here, but there absolutely was. Yeah. All indigenous peoples uh, were subject to uh, genocide by the United States government. So I actually read this book that uh, called Miracles and Massacres that was all about uh, American history specifically. And so it talked about some of the amazing things that we've done. 
and these these miraculous stories about you know the founding and and the progression of the United States, but it also highlighted massacres that took place and I don't remember which battle it was, but there was one that they talked about that was it's not taught like in the history books of one of the absolute massacres that we had with uh, an encounter with a Native American tribe. Are you talking about wounded name? I think, yeah, that, that it rings well, a bell. Wounded, from, wounded name was one. It was basically like the last of the like Native American wars with the with the United States, and that that actually took place on the Sioux Reservation, right on the Nebraska South Dakota border. And that, and yeah. ba- and basically, our military walked in um, into the area while the tribe that basically consisted only of women, children, and really sick elderly folks that were sleeping in their teepees in the freezing cold and they set up Hodgkin's guns and just mowed them all down while they were still asleep. Like in the morning. Yeah, that was the one. That was the one that I read about. I was just Yeah, and that that's the most medals of honor that have ever been handed out in, yep. in the American war. Um in, in the history since the United States um for killing men, women and, and children that were completely defenseless. It's really unfortunate. No, and it's, I think it's, it's equally as important to highlight the amazing accomplishments that we've been able to provide to our people and to the world because of the existence of the United States. But it's equally as important to, to point out where we went wrong. Plenty of places all over made a oh, ton sure. of mistakes. But it's it's balancing those out. People like to, you know, live in black or white, like, oh, we're good, or oh, we're bad. Like, ah, we're just, we're a group of people, just like everywhere else. Well, I, I think that everybody, you know, and I was, you know, raised in kind of an environment that, you know, the United States is the best, and like mm-hmm. very much raised with a major portion, portion of like just at the utmost like patriotism. I mean, yeah. I, I have a, I have a, a male family member and that I can trace my line back before and since we I'm actually a Mayflower descendant so I actually had like relatives that came over on the actual Mayflower that I can trace back but oh my gosh ever since basically our family landed here or my lineage there's been a man in in my family that has been part of every war from the Civil War the Revolutionary War the French Indian Wars like Vietnam like Korea everything yeah um, That's sick. So, I mean, I, I was always taught like very much like patriotism and, and what it takes. And I have the utmost respect for, for our military, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's being a little ignorant nowadays to think that we're one of still the best country in the world because I, I don't believe that's true anymore. I think that we absolutely would still have the ability to be, but there's a lot of problems here too, just like there are everywhere, you know, um, our educational system is, is appallingly bad. Our healthcare system is appallingly bad. Um, we're still the only first world developed superpower that doesn't even offer maternity leave to women. Like it's kind of ridiculous, you know, to then be like, well, we're the greatest ever. No, we're not. Like, if you can't make sure that a mother can, re- like, recover after, like, shoving a human being out of her, 
for a couple of weeks, like I would say that there's a little work to be done. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I love about this country and the reason I'm so inspired by it is the opportunities that, you know, if you choose, if you make the choices in your life, then, then you can propel yourself in a, in a better direction than potentially where you started. And one of the stories that inspired me and that inspires me to this day is yours, which is why we're talking. And see, like that segue was good. (laughs) 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 When, uh, so going back way, 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 way back um, in your story. So just to give context, so you started a nonprofit, you helped co-found a nonprofit, you had graduated from Creighton, um, you've traveled the world and and helped probably thousands of people. Um, but what I I just kind of want to encapsulate kind of like the the starting point, like your childhood, because it's not all rainbows and butterflies that propelled you to do such amazing things. There were a lot of things for you to overcome. Well, sure. I mean, again, like I do agree that probably the United States is one of the best places that people have an opportunity to, uh, you know, make a better life for themselves. I will disagree that we have an equal opportunity with each other. Um, We don't. There's a lot of privilege and a lot of it is, I'm not going to say white privilege, but there's a lot of rich privilege, right? If you know the right people, Uh, you can get into the better schools and you can have a better network and you can have a better job and you can make more money and you can have more opportunities. Um, And sometimes you can be part of that very slim percentage that can figure out how to do that by luck and circumstance or whatever on your own. But no matter how hard I work or how smart I am, I'm probably never going to have the same opportunities as like, you know, let's say like President Obama's kids or the Bushes or, you know, the Rothschilds or whatever, yeah. whether or not they gave me any of the money, their connections and the education and other things that you're exposed to will never be the same. The um, beautiful thing, I think one of the equalizers is just human nature in the aspect of you, you, there's still choice involved, right? And so you have people that may not have the opportunity, but make the choices to make a difference. And you see a lot of people in those families who don't make that choice. And while all the opportunity is there. And so I guess that's, that's one thing I just like about, about this is that you don't have to, you may not have the same connections and, and be launching from the same point. And you may have to work 10 times as hard every single day, but you have that opportunity. Like it's just in the sense of we're not a communist nation. You're not going to be working twice as hard for somebody else so that everyone can eat. You know, you can. Oh, absolutely. And it's not just, and it's, and I agree with you though. I, I agree with you in the sense that it's not, I used to be a pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of guy. And I still am to a certain extent because I think that it's without, pulling yourself up you're never going to get up but the importance of community has has become significantly real to me and in the sense that you know especially if you can you know if you can if you are a member of the community and you can help people out and you can give that that 
helping hand because that's happened to me a bunch, a bunch. I've gotten so many uh, opportunities from people that, that would not, that did not come naturally, did not come from people I know. They came from relationships that I established over time. So it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's definitely a, a combination of things. No, I agree with that. I think the most unfortunate part of that is, is that I think it's still in, especially like Western and specifically American culture that's um, wanting to give your life in service to others is still very much undervalued, especially financially. Um, So you know, if I want to go stab people in the back and work on Wall Street, I can clear, you know, a million five a year. But if I want to go make sure that people are like, have clean water and are vaccinated or run a community health clinic, I've got to struggle every single day to make that happen and make maybe if I'm lucky, like $22,000 a year. You know, it's just the, I think the issue nowadays, especially the United States is like the, the difference between one job and another, like again, like the Red Cross, and I'll I'll say point blank, I'm not a fan. Um, I I've, think the way I've that it started was great, yeah. um, but the fact that if you're working in a field that is supposed to be to help people, then your CEO shouldn't be clearing three million dollars a year. It's re- while the people that work under you and do the majority of the actual boots on ground work are making like nothing the disparity between this the the top executives and the people doing the work and especially in um ngos is really disheartening yeah that's that's Um, definitely where my problem with it goes if you're in an ngo (laughs) or you're in an uh yeah yeah then that's that's crazy that yeah, the CEO. That, I mean, that type of disparity. Oh, but it, the larger nonprofits, it, it, it's it's a real it's a real problem. So, like, it's I just crazy for, because it's you know, they're in a category of nonprofit. <laughs> well, I think that everybody misunderstands the term nonprofit. Yeah. which they believe that that just means that you don't have any money at the end of every fiscal year, which is complete BS. Yeah. Um, it's just that that money is supposed to be going towards operating um, a business that's sole purpose is for the good of others. Um, unfortunately, it gets bastardized a lot. Um, mm-hmm. The longer that they're and bigger that they are um, and the bureaucracy and, um, you know, the amount of people and the lack of oversight and things like that is unfortunate. Um, so the, the thing with, you know, being in a nonprofit, or especially if you want to start one, you got to really ask yourself, what, what is my mission? And what am I willing to do to stay the course of that mission and not be not turn into this big, out of control machine that becomes so large that we lose sight of why we started doing this in the first place. I don't know. I really question the possibility of that. It feels like there is a point when you have too many people or you're trying to do too much as one singular organization where things will inevitably start to fall apart. 
it, and implode. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, <coughs> you see it. And that, I think that that was one of the things that I appreciate about the founding of our country was just the focus on the States and like not wanting to do that. And, and the same thing with, with small companies that you see start with a, a beautiful mission statement. And just like the, the group that you were working for, it's a perfect example when you went to Haiti the first time and their progression, like, Oh, we can, we can still do this. We can still go there and just lose sight of the good that you were trying to do. It's, it seems to be that, inevitable and, and somehow tied to the number of people that are involved. Oh, it, I think it absolutely does. But again, um, anything that's unleft or left unchecked for too long will, I think, kind of procre- pro- progress into this monster. Um, and again, you've got to be really, uh, focused on not letting that happen. Um, you know, one ways that, that nonprofits can kind of stay in check with their missions and making sure that that money is going where it needs to go is, um, you know, and if people are even looking at giving money to nonprofits, one of the things you need to ask the first thing and, and, and I don't know if people, I don't think this is like a well-known thing. Anybody that is a 501c3, um, which is nonprofit status with the mm-hmm. United States federal government and with the deemed by the IRS, yep. you're allowed to call in their books anytime you want. They have 30 days to produce them. Oh, wow. I had you no can idea. see where the money goes. That makes sense. because that's, that's because basically there's no way that the IRS can like check on everybody. So yeah. because it's an organization that people can give money to, they basically look at the American people to be the checks and balances for that. So the number one question to always ask a nonprofit before you want to give them your money is say, how many cents on each dollar do you spend on administrative overhead? Yes. yes. So- in my, yeah, well, There's the Red again, company. Susan G. Komen Foundation, everybody knows for cancer, they spend 92 cents on the dollar on overhead, administrative oh my overhead. God. So Why only, do you exist? Only Get eight, out of here. Only eight cents of your dollar that you give to Susan G. Komen is actually going towards breast cancer research. That's So there's a company um, called Mercury One. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They do Mm-mm. a fundraiser every year, once a year, and the fundraiser is to solely cover their entire operating costs for the entire year. So you know that when you donate I think that's amazing. Day. I think it's so smart. It's so transparent. Mm-hmm. And then you know every yeah. time you give to them 100% of your money. And you don't, you could just not donate to the operating funds like if you so chose. Sure. And then you mm-hmm. could just donate to the causes that you agree with and that you want to support. And you know 100% of that is going to that. I think that's brilliant. No, I think that's a totally a brilliant plan. And, and the thing is, is like, I, I'm not saying that you know, there shouldn't be administrative costs. Of course no, there's there going to be. Yeah. You got to eat. An you got to feed the people. Amount, it's, it's an amazing amount of energy that goes into, you know, trying to, trying to make stuff happen, especially 
I mean, well, really anywhere. I was going to say, especially in other countries, but it's sometimes it's even worse in the U.S. because there's so much more red tape oh my than there are in some other countries that you go to. So yeah, you've got to pay people, and people should be compensated for their time, like somewhat fairly. But again, there's a difference between being compensated as a CEO like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and three million dollars a year. Like, <laughs> I just don't feel like it's necessary. Like, it's it's just it's. It just it's makes kind me, of morally repugnant. Yeah, well, it makes me question your motivation. You know, like, what, is your motivation really well, that's the thing. to it's help like, these causes? It, well, it's definitely to get their name out there. I mean, like, again, uh, I, I forget what the grand total that the Red Cross raised for Haiti was after the earthquake. And people started asking, where did the money go? And all they did was build six homes with I think it was like over a billion dollars. That's right. I remember hearing that my head exploded. I was like, I am yeah. done with the Red Cross forever. Now I say that I still give blood. I still give blood. Um yeah, I give blood too, but I mean I I dealt directly with Red Cross like during uh when I was in Haiti as well. And yeah, it's just not something that I will ever be involved with working with them again. Um yeah. I do like the Salvation Army. Um, I think, again, their CEO, I think, only makes like 150, 160,000. And again, if you're the CEO of something the size of the Salvation Army, like, you got a lot of work to do. So yeah. I don't think that that's an unimaginable salary. Like, I mean, that's a lot more than a lot of people make. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But for what you're doing, I, I think that that, I, th- I think that's fair. Um, but 3 million, like, no, you don't need to, like, you know, you don't need to make that when your sole purpose is like trying to give people homes that don't need them. Can you imagine how many homes that 3 million, like one person's salary would build? Well, based, based or on the, the or how many vaccines rate, it would give or one? how many people that could get surgeries or whatever yeah. that they need for an incurable or not incurable, but like a, a situation like that little girl in Cambodia, like yeah. jaw surgery, like, how many of those you could do on $3 million? Probably could have built a hospital to do those procedures then, you know? <laughs> That's the thing. It's like, again, I, I'm like, why are we not looking at putting these things, the sustainability in place? Building we that infrastructure, yeah. We, we're, we're a society of responsive or like, you know, being reactive. We need to be proactive, we got to stop waiting for stuff to happen and throw money at it and then be like, well, why isn't anything being accomplished? Well, we need to be building an infrastructure before there's a problem. I mean, everybody complains in the U.S. about FEMA. You know, that's our federal emergency management office and they suck, right? (laughs) Um, They, because of all the red tape and bureaucracy and the way that everything runs, it's, it's a nightmare. Anybody that is an NGO that has ever had to deal with FEMA, I guarantee you almost nine times out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, will say it's a nightmare trying to deal with them until that disaster has been over for at least a year and a half when they can actually organize and figure out what's going on. So to me, that is not an emergency management because there's no longer an emergency. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, you're past it. Exactly. Or response. Yeah, right? you're that's, in the reconstruction that's a long-term phase. Long-term sure. response. 
So yeah, it you know, definitely it, seems it's like just, it would be more effective on uh, if if it was things like that were established. Again, this goes back to the size of organizations. You know, if if there were many FEMAs, you know, like city sponsored and state sponsored versus relying on one national organization to try to cover the entire United States when something goes wrong. No, I agree. And again, grassroots organizations, even ones that haven't filed for their like 501c3 status as a legitimate nonprofit with the US tend to be a lot more successful because the people that are involved are very dedicated to the cause. Yeah. Um, a lot of times they'll give their time without being monetarily compensated. Mm-hmm. Um, and they believe in what they're doing. They're not doing it because it's their job. They're doing it because they care about it. Yeah. Again, like, you know, what we did with our group of, you know, 24 people. I mean, we were all still working full-time jobs. We were like on the phone and doing this stuff like 24 hours a day. You know, when one person's like, I got to get some sleep for like four or five hours, like another would be like, here's where we stand with this. Can somebody follow up with this county or whatever and make sure like those pallets of water get there? And we would just like go back and forth. It was crazy. And just an absolutely like amazing team of individuals. I feel so lucky to have like worked with with that, but it was amazing. Like, I think we all actually really surprised ourselves. With, you know, how much we could get done, you know, in, in that amount of time and, and just well, figuring makes, out resources. I mean, yeah, it makes sense when you think about like the people that care the most about what's going on are the people that live there, you know? And so it would make sense that <laughs> those who are going to be the most passionately involved are going to be people that are, that are local. And so putting fe- I had focus people in. That act- I had, I had uh, one or two people on our team that actually had never met that live in Maryland and oh, had never incredible. even been there that were still helping like do stuff. Sure. Um, you know, oh, and it's not to, not to say that about you can't. it. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. No, but of course, you know, and again, like it does make it, it, it makes it exponentially more difficult if you don't have reliable contacts on the ground to ever make anything work. Mm-hmm. You know, the stuff that we wanted to do in India took us a year after we were there until we could start doing that. Just, you know, because there's a language barrier. You're not there. You got to find somebody that you can trust on the ground to like do that kind of stuff. So you can make things happen a lot easier if you've got somebody that knows like people and knows the area. I was getting calls like I actually I got a call during um, the Midwest flooding from the emergency management coordinator of the tribal council of the Lakota Sioux tribe, the Oglala Sioux. And so I, I answer this call and he says, introduced himself and he goes, I heard you can get hay. Cause I had actually coordinated with the university of Nebraska at Lincoln to have over 45,000 pounds of hay hauled into the reservation. That's a lot. Of and hay. it was supposed to get there that day, but it's not, the- not when you're, I mean, and the purpose of this for people that are not familiar with the Nebraska lifestyle, why are you trying to move hay around, Kelly? Well, that's the thing that made, I think, the Midwest flooding disaster such um, a different animal than people have ever dealt with because mostly we deal with the coasts and we deal with hurricanes. So, it's yes, it's a humanitarian thing. There's flooding. There's, you know, loss of homes, um, things like that. But in the Midwest... Um, what we do is agriculture 
Yep. So we've got, we've got calves and we've got horses and we've got all this and that's people's entire livelihoods. And, you know, we'd had animals standing in water for five days with no food, you know, that are then have bacterial infections and everything else we had. I think they came down and said a million calves were lost. Oh my God. um, During the flooding. Um, and I think we, I think Nebraska alone produces almost two, is it 2 billion bushels of corn like a year? Yeah. And they're not even number one. Um, like. <laughs> they're not even number one. No. Um, that's, so that's yeah. So, so, much. so a lot of these agencies were completely overwhelmed because it's hard enough to deal with the humanitarian issue, but they have, they've never really had to deal with the ag and livestock problem that was happening. Oh, it's a whole different problem set. It's a very big different problem set. Um, And you've got to have people that understand different types of hay and different kinds of uh, animal feed and, you know, how to like recognize, like I was on the phone with, uh, you know, equine veterinarians about making sure we got information out to people about like equine colic and different, you know, animal illnesses by getting the wrong types of hay. And, um, and I don't think that people realize how much hay, you know, cows and horses can eat in a day, you know, and if you've got a whole, you know, a whole herd, like you're gonna, you know, or the differences between square bale or round bale hay. And I'll tell you what, like, even though I grew up on an, you know, my family had a dairy farm, um, I never learned what all those kind of, I mean, I had heard terminology, but mm-hmm. I didn't completely understand all of that because I was so young when oh, we yeah. had that. But I had to go through an entire learning curve being like, I got to talk to like veterinarians and I've got to talk to other animal rescues and yeah. I've got to figure out where the heck we can get hay and how, how, what kind of rigging you got to have to like call hay and how many pounds this needs and you know if there's special like you know alfalfa hay and grass bale hay and you know all this yeah, it's crazy it's a funny misconception i have to overcome especially being in the military so i'm i'm been far removed from nebraska for like a decade now and mm-hmm. i tell i i meet people and they're like oh where are you from and everyone thinks i'm from california <laughs> I, <don't know> why. <laughs> I can see that <laughs> Um, but so I tell them I'm, I'm from Nebraska. They're like, Oh, okay. So like you grew up on a farm and I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah. No. no, yeah. I See, honestly, people wouldn't don't understand the Midwest either. No, not at all. I like, I've never spent a day on a real farm doing any sort of real work. I would have no idea what to do. So, Oh God. See, my family had a dairy farm. So, uh, we had, um, we had one of the largest dairy operations in Southwest Iowa. It was in a, in Red Oak, Iowa. When I was really little, my grandparents started it way before I was born, but we milked, I think it was about 750 head of cattle a day and you had to do it twice a day. So oh it gosh. took about 12 hours. I can't believe you never took me. About t- <laughs> <laughs> you, I think that we were winding down our dairy operation when about the time you were little and just blind. yeah yeah so um no but it, it was 24 hours a day so it would take us 12 hours to milk 750 head and the minute you're done oh milking them, them you'd have to milk them again it was oh 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year that's incredible that's yeah and there's there's a lot there's a lot to to learn and to understand when dealing with these types of disasters in different locations and so 
think your your ability right but again i don't i don't i don't think that the midwest or like i don't think that a lot of the ngos in the united states have ever is really i mean they said they, i think they i heard it called the 500 year flood like since really the existence of like fema and yeah. a lot of the ngos that did humanitarian relief like nobody had ever seen anything like this they the they're they're still hauling in hay from all all the other states like everywhere even now yeah it's, um, it's it goes back to what we said it's it's not over it's not done. there's still oh, recovery no, going to be a, a huge long-term recovery there's with some of the, I mean, well, I don't know if you saw Davenport, Iowa, even just a couple of days ago, those levees went. So that whole town's underwater, you know, oh and it's going to, it's going to continue all summer. It's going to work its way all the way down to the Gulf coast. Um, Nebraska has more waterways than any other state in the, in the U S. So there's still snow up in like uh, Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota as that melts, it's going to continue to flood and reflood over and over again for months. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, I, so I got the call from the emergency management, uh, director with the uh, tribal council and he said, I'm calling for so-and-so. And I said, yep, this is she. And he goes, well, I heard that you can get hay. And I said, yeah, I can. I said, I'm having, you know, a, like a, about a 45,000 pound shipment delivered today. You sound like a really serious and drug he, dealer right now. <laughs> and, <laughs> I've, got right. You, I've got your, I've got your hay. <laughs> <laughs> I got some hay. And he goes, well, I'd like the name of your driver. And I said, I won't give that to you. Um, so just a little backstory. There was a lot of tension with uh, tribal council just because, again, they, they don't like outsiders coming in. It took a lot of coordination to get that all to work. Um, and, and there was a lot of shipments that were getting commandeered on the way when we were sending shipments in, that there would be people that would take over shipments and, and steal everything. Then we also found out that because Colorado and I believe it was Missouri or Kansas had the governors had waived the uh, trucking weight fees for supplies coming into the area, Good. that those truckers weren't having to be pulled over and be weighed. So people started smuggling drugs ah. and other things. <laughs> No, they did. They started good, smuggling good, in stuff. Um, good old American to the reservations, right? But they were especially doing it on the Native American reservations, which are dry, which means they're not even allowed to have alcohol on them. It's, right. a, it's a federal crime. It's a felony. So I said, no, I won't give you the name of my driver. Um, I coordinated with him for the last three days. He's paying all out of his own pocket to haul this on his 18-wheeler, you know, and has made a two-day trip, you know, to get it there. And I gave him my word I would see it through. And I said, can I ask you how you got my name to call about this? And he goes, well, I called the National Guard and they told me to call you. (laughs) So you're saying you're kind of a big deal. I'm not saying I'm a big deal. (laughs) What my point was is that when at a grassroots level, when you like just figure out how to get some stuff done, you can possibly get it done a lot easier and quicker than when you've got all the other crap in your way that you have to deal with. Yeah. And when also when people realize like after you're there and you're working and people realize that you are like, you're a rock, like you're a reliable source of energy and, and work to get this done. And you're, you know, you're a mover that, you know, it makes a difference. 
Absolutely. Um, again, I was never boots on ground. I mean, it was killing yeah. me that I couldn't be boots on ground. And I also hated the fact that like, even though I, I mean, I relied heavily on the people that I, that were part of our team. Some of them were boots on ground, you know, mm-hmm. but again, I've never met you. I do trust you, but I, again, I feel like we came with the same upbringing, which is like, when I give you my word, I'll see again, I'll see it through. I want to make sure like nothing happens there that it makes me look like I'm putting you in a bad position. Yeah. So that was a little difficult for me because I was just like, I feel like I need to be there to meet it, you know, and make sure yeah. like everything is like taken care of. And that 45,000 pounds of hay that got delivered was gone in 28 minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, well, and the reason that we knew it was such a big deal to, to get hay up there, especially the reservations was, um, again, the, the territory and, and just the geographical layout of the reservation, um, with all the flooding was that all the roads were washed out and the only way that they could transport any supplies was by horseback. And some of those horses hadn't eaten in a week. Oh my gosh. Um, there was people that hadn't had water in 10 days. So we had to make sure that those ponies were like getting fed because, that was their only means of transport. They couldn't get any relief supplies to anybody without horses. So, and, and not only that, but going back to the whole, you know, cultural significance, um, horses are sacred, um, especially to the Sioux tribe. Uh, they're considered parts of like uh, the, you know, the God of thunder or whatever. Um, so they're, they're kind of like deities as well. So we didn't want a situation where they were having, you know, I mean, there, I, I got plenty of pictures of the, you know, the aftermath of some of the livestock that was happening up there, but which was again, unfortunate, but devastating. you know, we did, you know, we did what we could do yeah. um, and we're still looking at now doing some sustainable projects. Um, up there because they've needed help for a long time and it's hard to get be trusted into that community I I feel like we've now you know made that kind of name for ourselves so sure gain some credibility some of those discussions right Mm -hmm. yeah so how how did you it's I'm so curious about the the early parts of your life and wanting to talk about that and how you started where you started from to get to the woman that you know started <laughs> helped co-found her nonprofit gets called gets referred to by the National Guard in an emergency in the state this this woman what was so as as a kid I know that there were some tribulations towards the end specifically of your high school time if you want to get into any of that but if you want to hear the answer to that question then you're gonna have to tune in next week for another episode of burn your boats the final the capstone episode for kelly kroll it's been such an amazing pleasure we're two-thirds of the way through one more show one last hour with kelly and i think it's gonna be a great one thank you so much for coming back and continuing to listen it's an absolute pleasure to be able to 
talk to these people and provide these insights and their stories to you. Hopefully you're gaining the inspiration that you need in order to commit and take action towards your goals. Until next week, keep your chin up and a smile on your face. Love you guys.